I'm Matt Bush with BPR News. I'm speaking with UNC Asheville Interim Chancellor Joe Ergo. Joe, thank you for coming in today. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. So we'll have plenty of things to talk with you, but first right. let's do this to kind of get this out of the way. What is the status of the search for a new chancellor? Well, the search, it's a confidential search. It's well underway. The uh, finalists have been presented to the president of the system, and it's in her hands now for interviews and final decisions. We should know, we expect to know something by the Board of Governors meeting at the end of May. Okay. Um, commencement's also coming up. Uh, it is on May 12th. Can you tell us a bit about what commencement's going to be like at UNC Asheville this year? Who's speaking in the class that is graduating and going out into the world? Our commencement speaker is Bill Murdoch uh, from Eblin Charities, and we are um, anticipating and planning for the largest graduating class in, in recent memory, maybe the historically largest class at 570. I think I forget the numbers go up and down as we get as students to either make it or don't make it sometimes <laughs> in that final few days. Uh, we also have one of the largest incoming classes, so we're, it's uh, very healthy enrollments right now. Okay. Last week, Margaret Spellings was here in Western North Carolina to um, uh, to talk um, as part of a statewide tour. You spoke at the end of it, and you t- talking about workforce development. And that was sort of a big part of what colleges are doing right now. But UNC Asheville is a liberal arts university, so you were saying you know workforce is one thing and it's important. But you brought up the term thought force. Uh, can you tell us what you mean by that? Yeah, let's start with workforce. Uh, I think it's a very important function of universities to prepare students to enter the workforce, to have jobs. I think students can expect and should expect to graduate job ready, to walk in uh, an entry level and above jobs. But that's not all we do at universities. Uh, we're not just job preparation. Um, and the term thought force refers to a liberal arts university in particular where we're training students to think critically. That's a, that's a phrase we hear a lot, but I'd like to expand on what that means since that's often and rightfully seen as you know inside baseball jargon in, 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 in a university. Uh, critical thinking means um, that we're, cre- we're uh, encouraging and teaching students how to think of problems from multiple perspectives. So you may have a, an issue, a social issue, and you can you can approach that from a psychological perspective and think it's the individuals involved who, who are, are, are have anxiety or neuroses of some kind. Or you can take a sociological perspective and see it from a wider system-wide, population-wide phenomenon. You can take a historical perspective and say, you know, we've seen this happen in the past. We've seen this 100 years ago in, in this particular uh, instance. Uh, you could take a more aesthetic or literary approach and think imaginatively about how things could be different. All a way of saying that th- knowing how to think of a problem from multiple perspectives is much more valuable than having one perspective on something and beating your head against it until it, it either caves or you cave. You know, uh, So I like the term critical thought force because we are producing people who can think through the problems that are facing us. And I think I mentioned at that session that there's a host of intractable problems right now that people just don't know the solution to. Climate change, racial inequities, housing, uh, just some local policing, some local issues. And the way that we thought the kind of thinking that got us into those predicaments is not going to be the kind of thinking that's going to get us out of those predicaments. So having students spend four years thinking creatively, thinking collaboratively, especially um, thinking up against students who think differently from them, come from different backgrounds, might might uh, might introduce you to a way of conceptualizing an issue that you'd never thought of before. Uh, these are simply invaluable skills. Uh, I don't think enough attention is paid to in the media about why we do this and how we do this at universities. It's why we have things like distribution requirement. That's why you're required to take a history course and a sociology course or other other areas or make sure that you're taking ways of thinking outside your major so you're not just focused in one way. Uh, I'd like to hear more about this and more discussion about this and make the public more aware of the kind of think thoughtful training that goes on at a university. And it doesn't have to be directly applicable to a job because we don't know what the issues are going, that students will face when they leave the university. 
as a liberal arts university, the liberal arts university of the UNC system, um, you're sort of in a special place to be able to address this, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, talk about that. Talk about, I always see, and maybe you see it too, the bumper sticker on some people they have. It says, critical thinking, the real national deficit. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So as a liberal arts university, as opposed to any other universities, um, how do you fit in, in in promoting critical thinking, not just through your curriculum, but also through the experiences that students will have at your school? Yeah, when students sign on to come to a liberal arts university, they're signing on essentially that their their liberal arts experience will not just be the first or second year of college with a couple of required courses, but it'll be all four years of their college. So our engineering students, for example, are in humanities courses in their senior year, as are education students and business students, as well as our traditional liberal arts students. So they're asking for that experience by, by coming to this university. The state has, has sort of uh, given its seal of approval to it by funding us to a level that we can have uh, full-time instructors in freshman and sophomore classes in all four years. We don't have teaching assistants, so we're not on that model. And it, it does take a commitment on the state to do that. But it's a commitment that suggests that we do need students who are trained uh, to do this kind of thinking that we're talking about. Um, and concomitant with that, it's also a, a, a question of size. We're a small school. You know, we're not interested in, in continual growth. We're interested in maintaining the size that we have, maybe growing a little bit. Growing a little bit would be would be understandable considering the current environment and the capacity that we have. But we're not looking to grow to 5,000 students. We're at, at 3,500, 3,600 students and, and quite effective there. That means, you know, class students are used to classes uh, with 20 people in them. They're used to classes that could not function if they didn't participate. You can't come to class and sit in the back row because, as we often say, we don't have any back rows. It's all the front row. Uh, and when, when students are absent from class, they'll get a call from their professor because they were expected to do something that day. Um, so this sense of constant participation, um, that you're not passive, you know, not a passive receptor of information, that knowledge only, only blossoms and problems only get solved when people take part in them. Our students get that experience over and over and over again in their classes. So we think and we expect that when they graduate, They'll, when they're sitting in a room and problems are discussed, they'll assume, I've got to say something here. I've got to participate in this. They're, they're waiting for me. Um, and those are habits that can't be taught. They've got to be experienced. And you've got to sort of have them as part of your intellectual DNA when you graduate. You can't acquire those on the job. Access to higher education. Mm-hmm. And we'll talk specifically about UNC Asheville. One of, its, uh, one of the things that makes it attractive to people is the smaller class mm-hmm. size uh, and the smaller enrollment size and all that. But there is concerns about the diversity of a liberal arts campus and mm-hmm. liberal, the, the enrollment of a liberal arts yeah. campus. Something you had mentioned to me right before we started chatting was you know, rethinking thought, critical thought forces about rethinking a lot of things. Mm-hmm. The first thing you were discussing with me was rethinking admissions, and how has that changed, and how can rethinking admissions at a university affect and promote more of a diverse student body? In my time here, we've been we've been just doing that, rethinking admissions. Historically, at a liberal arts university, liberal arts colleges, admissions offices were gatekeepers. They sort of took the incoming class and prided themselves on how many people they they would they would reject and, and say no to, and then touted the number of uh, their high selectivity rate. That high selectivity rate often resulted in bringing in, as you were suggesting, uh, students from a certain stratum of of class and socioeconomic background. If reliance on the SAT scores, for example 
example, if you want the higher your SAT scores, uh, the more indicate, indicative of that as you come from a family that's already gone to college, your parents have gone to college, it's also an indicator of wealth. So if you really want to diversify and bring in underrepresented groups into a liberal arts university, you've got to look beyond those kind of numbers and just look for capacity, what students are capable of doing. I've charged their admissions office with you know making sure, of course, you're looking at test scores, you're looking at grade point averages, but the main overriding question is, can this student be successful at UNC Asheville? Is this the right fit for them? So it's moving admissions offices away from gatekeepers to, uh, I don't know, fit keepers, you know, trying to find students for where this is the right match. So we may have a, you may have a student, for example, who's in a rural area from an under-resourced college, uh, under-resourced high school that just doesn't have AP classes. So if you're using the bar of how many AP classes that student takes, that's really unfair. Or if they're, they're grade on AP scores, if they're not taking the AP test. Or if a student had a really bad sophomore year in high school when their parents split up and so they, they failed. And so as a result, their GPA is abysmal, even though in the last two years, it's, it's quite high. What we can do at a small school is look individually at those applications. So bring in those rural students who come from backgrounds that are less than enviable, uh, bringing those students from inner cities that may have had really tough times in high school, and we think a, a, um, a change in venue at a small school with, with a more personal approach will help them. Uh, this will help the numbers, the, the statistics. It'll help bring in that diverse class that we really need because, as I was saying earlier, that helps the thought process. That helps the learning process. B- much more learning happens when students confront students from other backgrounds that they hadn't even envisioned before. So we're, we are working to get away from that sense that liberal arts is just for a certain class of people. Uh, that's a dangerous assumption. That assumes that our best thinkers are only going to be found in wealthier classes or in classes from certain demographics. Uh, as I said at, at the uh, State of the University event, we don't know where the next really groundbreaking mind is going to come from. If you look at the minds over the past 50 years that have influenced us the most, they come from the most unlikely kind of places, and unli- unlikely kind of backgrounds. So unless we think that talent and intelligence is only distributed to the wealthy classes. We're going to reach down to all, all classes and all races and all backgrounds and rural areas and urban areas to give every student who wants this kind of education a chance to show us what he can do. And we do take risks on students. We're pr- I'm proud of that. We take some students. Every year there's a group of students that come in. They're, they're risky because of their, their backgrounds have been a little rocky. Uh, I'm, I'd much, ra- much rather have a student, give a student a shot, have them come here and see what they can do than to just close that door to them because we think it might be dangerous dangerous to our reputation if we let them into the school. What sorts of things are happening at the university to broaden the student body? Uh, this was something certainly Dr. Grant talked about. Mm-hmm. She was here just five, six months ago when she was leaving and all that. I've heard it from some other people at the university mm-hmm. of UNC Asheville is behind on doing this. What are you doing? Because you did say you have uh, the largest incoming class mm-hmm. uh, coming next fall of freshmen. So what sorts of things are you doing to make sure that this is uh, a more indicative of the demographics of not just North Carolina, but of, of the country? Yeah, so you may have students coming in who we know are perfectly capable of doing this work, who may not have had the, the kind of preparation that might give them the, put them on a more level playing field. So summer bridge programs. We have a number of summer programs that bring students in to um, maybe do their English requirement, their writing requirement, or their humanities requirement in advance, and then come into their first year with a little bit lower course load because they've gotten some credits from the summer. Uh, that make have them ease into the rigors of, of full, full immersion into an academic uh, life. Uh, there are also programs that take place in the fall semester to help some students who, again, may need some. Not, they don't need extra help. They don't need remedial help because they've got the they've got the capacity. What they lack is some experience. And so, putting putting them in a group for a freshman seminar 
Harbor there with a group of like uh, students from similar backgrounds and mixing with mainstream students gradually. Uh, these these aren't these aren't crutches, but they're just things that are that are, other students have already had those experiences. It's not like we're getting something extra. They're making up for something that was that they hadn't experienced yet. Uh, we're also making more strategic use of our summer school. Uh, often students have to work in the summer. And uh, that means they can't take summer classes. And if they take summer classes, they're losing money not only because they're not working, but also because they've got to pay for the summer classes. Well, last year, we tried a pilot program out. We identified a group of 23 students who were entering their senior year about maybe two or three credit, two or three courses short of being fully immersed seniors, which means they might not finish in that, fifth, in that fourth year. They might end up, end up going to a fifth year. Uh, the result of going to a fifth year uh, put you in danger of that spreading out to a sixth year, and uh, the, the attrition rate becomes, skyrockets after that. So we thought, what if we paid the tuition for these students in the summertime? It's an average investment of about eleven or twelve hundred dollars per student, uh, and had them take one or two courses. Give us a plan that me, that would assure us that if they took one or two courses in the summer, they'd finish as seniors in their fourth year. And of those, I think it was 23 of those students, I think 19 or 20 of them are on, on track to graduate next week uh, for that extra help. It's a minor investment of money for us, but it's a game changer for them, uh, especially if you look at statistics. If you, if you graduate in five years instead of four, your income drops precipitously over the course of your career. Uh, it's, not, it's partly a mathematical equation. It's also partly a personal narrative equation because when someone goes through life thinking, well, I didn't quite graduate on time, it took me a fifth year, that's a wearing narrative on your, on your life story as opposed to I graduated with my class and then I went off to do these great things or I had, a, I had to work part-time for my fifth year and then in my sixth year I finally graduated. It just it affects one's self-esteem. So for a, a minimum investment of $1,000 or so, we can change a student's life in that way. What are some of the programs um, you're doing locally to reach out to prospective students? Uh, you have one here in Puncom County that you know would like to hear more about, but what are some of the programs that you're doing locally to reach out to students to kind of get them thinking about college and if UNC Asheville is the right fit for them? Because as you pointed out earlier in some of your answers, you know, it's really about the right fit mm-hmm, mm-hmm. At, at, at your particular university. Yeah, of course we do all the reach out that you'd expect us to do with high school students who are really thinking about college, but the, the, one of the main thrusts we have is with middle school students. It's, it's really the literature shows that middle school s- students need to start thinking about whether they're going to be and how they're going to be and envisioning themselves as being college students, uh, especially students who come from families that are, that are did not, if they're first generation college students, they don't have that same experience as students whose parents went to college. So we routinely bring in middle schoolers to, uh, to experience science labs or to go in, uh, well, they like to blow things up in science labs, especially if they can light fires and see that's exciting, or to bring them in to meet students in the arts studio or in chemistry labs. Um, we've got a current program that's that's targeting sons and daughters of migrant workers in Buncombe County. Migrant workers are, are an important part of the economy in, in Buncombe County in terms of the, the, the workforce needs. But because of the, uh, the, that, that lifestyle uh, and the struggles that these, that these families are often going through, college may not be foremost on their mind. So we've got a program of bringing the sons and daughters of these workers to campus to have that college experience in the summertime, spend a week um, going to, going to college-like classes, meeting other students who are interested in college, envisioning themselves in a, in a college campus. College campuses can be pretty intimidating places just to walk around. And so having someone guide you through what a college experience is so that, you know, in sixth and seventh and eighth grade, you start to think, yeah, I can, I can do that. Now, you know, whether it's UNCA that they go to, that's, that's going to be a choice that they'll make as they learn more about colleges. But we want them to begin thinking that of college as an inevitability, not just a remote possibility. One more thing to talk about access is cost. Do you have... 
Western Carolina to the west of UNC Asheville that this fall will start offering mm-hmm. the $500 tuition um, tuition plans as part of the NC Promise program. And then right to your east, you have Warren Wilson, a private school, much smaller private school that's going to be able to, but they're going to start offering free tuition to in-state students. So where do you fit in this? Are there concerns about that these schools around you in Western North Carolina can offer these programs and that you know, you, you, you're doing things, but you're not offering programs mm-hmm. such as that? Mm-hmm. First of all, I think it's, it's tremendous for our region to have these kind of university choices around. Uh, we wouldn't want to be a region where there was only one university or one college. Our students can choose between large regional comprehensives, private uh, colleges, uh, the public liberal arts college. There are a number of options for students, and that's basically a tremendous thing. Uh, we do a lot of collaborating with these with these universities. Um, we haven't seen the NC Promise, uh, we haven't seen an effect of that in our admissions. In fact, our, our incoming class this year in terms of our initial deposits is the, one of the largest in our history, if not the largest in our history. Uh, I think people, in, in, if you're comparing different options within the state, you might expect a, a slight premium in tuition for a, a school where the, the largest classes are in, their, are in in the 20s, and many of them are in 15 and below, uh, as opposed to a large comprehensive university, or uh, expect a, a premium where you're going to work closely with faculty, um, or, or you're going to be um, encouraged and almost required in many instances to do summer, to do um, undergraduate research, uh, access to internships, greater access to Asheville. Asheville is one of the one of the our main assets as a university that we're not in a rural area, we're not remote. Uh, we, we're very close to a lot of urban experiences, as well as of course the, the wonderful outdoors that we have here. Uh, but having being Asheville's university means our students in many of our disciplines expect an Asheville experience, and that's in everything from history. To sociology, to economics, uh, to even this um, program that's going on in, in Chicken Alley this weekend with a number of our faculty and students involved in, in, in envisioning this, this cultural neighborhood uh, on this, this, the block that we're sitting in right now. So, you know, I think when, when folks, when students make their decisions, it's not strictly on whether they're going to save a couple of hundred dollars here or there. It's, it's, the, it's the quality of experience that they want. Uh, combined with the price factor, and of course, we also uh, have we also have a um, we make we try to make things possible for students who are who, who need our assistance either through Pell grants and through university grants. A few months ago, you put out your economic impact mm-hmm. study that showed the impact UNC Asheville has mm-hmm. on the city of Asheville in Western North Carolina. You just said in your answer, it is the city's university. Mm-hmm. Um, tell us more about that. What since that report's come out and you've been able to digest it some, you know, where do you go next from that? Well, I think it's important, especially in, the, in, in in this particular era, that we monetize our effect on things. I think people expect that, expect to see that. Uh, we were responding in that report to a sense that, well, it's a pretty small university. How much of an impact can it really have? You know, and and a sense of the economic impact maybe being invisible. Uh, so, looking at a four hundred and fifty million dollar uh, impact every year, uh, looking at the number of jobs that are created, looking at the um, financial infusion of, of of resources that our students just bring by living here. Uh, one one impact I can point to in particular that wasn't in the report. We're, we're building new residence halls on campus now. Uh, that that'll service as we as we say in the industry, 290 beds. It's 290 students who'll be living in apartment style living, and it's available to them 12 months a year. And it's there are kitchens there, so they don't have don't have to be on the meal plan. That's 290 potential inhabitants of the private housing industry that have been taking out of the market, uh, freeing up housing on campus, uh, uh, freeing up housing in the in the in the city as a result. 
Uh, so the impact of what we do on campus isn't always readily apparent. So I think that uh, that report was to make that more apparent. Uh, as you know from talking to me, I'm much more interested in our intellectual impact, my personal, my personal interest, and our cultural impact. Uh, in terms of the speakers that we bring to campus, in terms of the um, opportunities that we give our students, I, I can give you. I want to give you an example of that, if I may. We have a um, visiting artist program called the Black Mountain College Legacy Fellows Program. This brings a, an artist to campus every semester whose work has been particularly inspired by the Black Mountain College legacy in terms of aesthetics and, and, and art education in particular. Last fall, uh, we had Mel Chin on campus, who's um, an internationally known artist. And when he was coming to campus, he, he mentioned to me that he'd just been awarded this large installation project in, in Times Square. And did I think that might interfere with, uh, with his stay here because he really needed to build this thing. So I said, let's, let's, why don't we build it here? Why don't we do it here? And it's, this is a massive project with uh, folks. I would direct folks to our website to see more details about it. But it involves a, a large wooden structure recreating a, a, a skeleton of a, of, a, of a sailing ship with a very prominent uh, figurehead at the st- front of it. It involves um, it's a partnership with Microsoft. It has a lot to do with computerized virtual reality experiences. And I, we've, we have a team of students who have been involved in building this. It's going to be in Times Square this summer in July 2018 a major installation, and our students have been involved with conceptualizing it, drawing it um, uh, with him, and then actually doing the building of it in our STEAM studio. It's hard to imagine this kind of experience being open to to students, you know, all the time. Uh, but it's the kind of impact that we're having on the local culture, I think, that I'd, I'd like to tout as, 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 as equally important as the economic impact. And that sort of parallels the, the, the parallel between the critical workforce and the critical thought force. You know, we need both. Uh, the workforce is predictable. You can see j- students graduating and going into jobs. The thought force is less predictable and should be less predictable because we don't know the solutions to the intractable problems we had. If we knew the solutions, we'd solve them. So we, it's, it, it stands the reason to think that we don't know where the, where the next great thought's going to come from. So we have to nurture and, and develop thinking across all disciplines. Joe Ergo, thanks for coming in today and speaking with us. It's been a pleasure chatting with you. Thank you.